It's Monday, June the 1st. We're studying 2 Peter. We're in 2 Peter chapter 3. We've reached verse 4 today, which is the content of what the scoffers or the mockers are going to come and say. Remember, we've had all this discussion about the false teachers in chapter 2. Uh, we're told at the beginning of chapter 3 that this is a reminder. They should know this, but he's reminding them again to remember these important things. And of first importance in this book, we're talking about the scoffers that are going to come in the last days with their scoffing, their mocking, their making fun, and their dismissal of biblical truth, and they're going to, of course, be following their own sinful desires just like the false teachers do. Whether this is outsiders or insiders doesn't matter. We get a lot of it from uh, outsiders, certainly those who are not uh, the false teachers within the church and the pulpits of the churches, but uh, certainly the critics of Christianity will say things like this, In here's the content of the scoffers, the example he gives in verse number four. They will say, here's an example, where is the promise of his coming? Right, keep waiting for Christ's return. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, and that's a euphemism for death, right? Ever since the patriarchs died, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So there's the argument right there. Verse number four, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So that is what we want to deal with, the scoffers and what they say. Now, I said as I read this in verse number four that this is an example. And I just want to spend a little bit of time looking at the kinds of things throughout the Scripture that the Bible says the mockers will do. And there's so many. I, I just started looking through the text of Scripture to see how often the scoffers or the mockers show up. And they mock all kinds of things. I guess at the just the fundamental level, the scoffers and mockers say, well, where is this invisible God? Take a look at this verse, Psalm 10, verse 4. It says, in the pride of his face, the wicked man does not seek God. All his thoughts, and certainly his words even are, there is no God. And that is where the atheists are, right? You guys are silly. Uh, they think of Richard Dawkins, probably the most famous and articulate atheist of our day, telling us we're all a bunch of you know, ridiculous fools for believing in God. I mean, that's where it starts. Uh, certainly, even people who believe that there is a God will mock uh, and scoff at what he says. We see that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Here's Satan, the serpent, more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... Right? Is that what he said? Did he really say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? People mock us for a lot of things that we say in quoting the scripture as to what God says, and they mock the content of biblical truth. Uh, so we better be ready for that. Second uh, Chronicles 36.16, talking about people here mocking the preachers. They kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people and there was no remedy. So the scoffing, we see a lot of scoffing against the preachers of God's word, the messengers of God, uh, the reiterative prophets of our day, just people out preaching the word. And you see a lot of people scoffing and mocking biblical preachers. And having done this for many years, uh, I know a little bit about that. They come saying all kinds of mockery about the preachers. Uh, they mock our religious practices. I use that in the best sense of the word, as James does, the kind of uh, pure uh, religion that we're supposed to practice in terms of the things we're bound to do as Christians, the things that we're called to do as Christians, even like giving our money 
Uh, here is the fool mocking the guilt offering. I mean, he didn't even understand why someone would bring a guilt offering in the Old Testament. Uh, but the upright, of course, we understand it. We enjoy the acceptance, the picture there of reconciliation that's in the uh, guilt offerings of the Old Testament. Of course, today you could update that with a lot of things that we do, and they mock what we do. Why do we do that? Why do we spend so much time at church? Why do we give our money to God and the church? And, you know, there's a lot of things that we do. Our prayers, they mock those things. Acts 17.32, they mock our hope, certainly. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, as Paul was preaching here in Athens, some mocked. Uh, others, thankfully, said, we're going to hear you again about this. But there's a lot of mocking going on. I start talking about the afterlife. Um, I preach many funerals and stand up and talk to people there that have gathered. A lot of them are non-Christians who come to a funeral of a Christian here in our church. You always see a lot of extended family and friends and neighbors. And uh, a lot of times you can see it on their face. They're mocking the truth of even the hope that we have in, in the resurrection of the body, uh, the resurrection of Christ as well, which is the prototype of our future resurrection. Matthew 27, they certainly mocked Christ himself and people still today do. They twisted a crown of thorns. These are the soldiers here. They put it on his head, put a reed in his right hand. I mean, this is supposed to be a scepter. And of course the crown of thorns supposed to be some kind of, of uh, you know, monarch's uh, royalty, his, his crown. Uh, and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail King of the Jews. <clears throat> a lot of people make fun of Christ. They make fun of, of his, uh, hope that he holds out to us in the resurrection. They mock uh, his messengers. Um, so th we should get used to that, and we should know that they're going to mock these things. And certainly in our passage, they're mocking this right here. Where is the promise of his coming? Well, let's just think about what Jesus said. Did he actually say that? We well, couldn't have said it more clearly than he did. John chapter 14, verse 3. And if I go, he's speaking about leaving them in this earthly ministry, and prepare a place for you, and he's going to do that through the cross, and uh, going to do that through providing access to the Father, going to the Holy of Holies, that picture of having access to God and us riding in, uh, so to speak, on the high priest's you know, robe as his people. We are now being made right before God because we have access through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. He says, I will come again. This is his promise. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So they're going to mock that Jesus said that. And they're going to say, as they did in Peter's day, along with a lot of other things, um, where is he? You guys have a hope of the return of Christ. How silly and ridiculous is that? And I see that all the time. Uh, people are, I mean, any hope of the Christian life that we hold out in terms of Christ's return or a coming kingdom or the things that we pray about every day in terms of the eschaton of the end coming, um, people mock that. But Jesus made a very clear promise, and he did it often. Just two examples here. Matthew chapter 26, verses 64 and 65. Jesus said to him, but I say so, or you have said so, he's admitting who he is, but I tell you from now on, you're not going to see me here anymore, but you're going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said he uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? Now we've heard the blasphemy. And basically, as the Bible goes on to say, the contradiction is they are blaspheming him by saying he's blaspheming. He's putting himself right where he belongs in the king and the monarch who's providing a way for us to be right with God. Then he's going to come back and establish the kingdom. He's going to give his saints the inheritance, and they are going to mock that. Well, that is blasphemy when they take that down to a level and say that's ridiculous. But Jesus is saying, 
saying. We're going to see him. Next time we see the Son of Man and you see his face, uh, they saw them there in that scene, but they're going to see a glorified Christ coming back, and he has made that promise. He's going to come in power on the clouds of heaven. Well, that is the promise, and that's the promise that he made. And their argument is, let's take a look at it here, 2 Peter 3, 4, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, it's been a long time, people keep dying, all of the forefathers and ancestors of the Jews here, all things are continuing on as they were from the beginning of creation. So basically, the argument is, well, listen, it hadn't happened yet, uh, which is an interesting and foolish argument. I mean, it's good for us just to recognize what it is. Hey, um, hasn't happened, and so it's not going to happen. Well, everything significant that God has done hadn't happened, if you think about it. I mean, obviously, he's repeated things that he's done, but I just start looking through Scripture at all the times that we are seeing God stepping into space and time and doing things, and you know the people are saying, "Wow, this never happened before." Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter four, verses thirty-two through thirty-four. He says, "For ask now of the days that are past, which before, uh, which were before you, since the day that God created man on earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the others whether such a great thing as this has ever happened." Or you've ever heard of it, right? Did a people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of a fire? That's what would just happen. This is the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy. We had the giving of the law. Well, that had never happened, uh, but it happened then, right? As you've heard and, and still live, how can that be? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? Here, Israel was taken out of Egypt. That had never happened. God hadn't done that before. By trials and by signs and by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror. Here are the plagues, right? All of which the Lord your God actually did. It happened for you in Egypt before your eyes. You guys witnessed the fact that God did what hadn't happened before. So the argument of, hey, Christ coming back and setting up a kingdom, well, that's never happened, and nothing like that has ever happened. Well, right, when God does something, you can look back and say many things like the redemption, the exodus, uh, the plagues of Egypt, those were things had not happened before. I don't know, just want to make that very clear. Even some of the judgments of God, like the great locust plague in Joel chapter 1. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? We'll tell it to your children. Let your children tell their children. Let the children to another generation. And here it is all about the locust. This locust plague was devastating, and it hadn't happened before like it happened there in Joel. And the whole point is... This is a unique act of God, and in a unique act of God, hadn't happened before. Um, Judges, chapter 19, sometimes the sin that has taken place in the world, right, hadn't happened before. The extent of it here in Judges, chapter 19, verses 29 through 30. When he entered the house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. Well, that had never happened before. And all who saw it, verse 30, said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt, which hadn't happened. Well, until this day, that had never happened. Consider it. Take counsel and speak. Here is an event that took place. It's not even a miraculous event, but it's an event that happened. And you say, well, it's not going to happen because it's never happened. That's the argument of the scoffers, and it's absurd. As a matter of fact, the first coming of Christ, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, in the fullness of time. And think about how long it had been. We don't know how long it had been from the promise in Genesis chapter 3, but we certainly know that the promise from Abraham's day in 2000, roughly 2000 BC, it took 2000 years for the promise of all the nations of the earth being blessed through the coming of Messiah and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, at least the first 
major installment of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, um, God did it, and he sent forth his son. Well, that had never happened before, but it happened. It happened in the fullness of time when God said it's time. Of course, he was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, and that's never happened before. It hasn't happened since. God did it, and the argument of, well, God's not going to send his son. Uh, well, all you'd have to say is, did he promise it? And if he promised it, well, when the time is right, he's going to do it. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 10 through 14, we get this same phrase here. God has a plan for the fullness of time. Just like the fullness of time in the first coming, there's a fullness of time in the second coming, and he's going to unite all things in him. We keep praying for it every day. Your kingdom come. We want God to reconcile everything in heaven and things on earth. Well, that's not happening until the kingdom comes. The will of God is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. When? At the fullness of time. right? And we have, it's as though it's already done, obtained an inheritance. Well, you really have you know, a card-carrying guarantee of it, but it hadn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. Why? Because it's been promised, right? We've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will, a will that he's revealed, that he's going to do this. So we, were the first, so we who are first to hope in Christ in that first generation there might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him. And you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until, right, still future, we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So we sit here with a hope that we're going to acquire possession of the great inheritance that the Bible talks about. That inheritance is coming when God's kingdom comes at the fullness of time. So for them to say, well, it's never happened before, so it's not going to happen it's just not a very good argument. As a matter of fact, he's going to unpack this in the verses ahead. He's going to say, here is why that doesn't make sense. And he's going to employ some examples. We're going to look at the creation. We're going to look at flood. And then we're going to look at the fact that just because God has taken a long time to do this, he's not delaying. It's purposeful in the fullness of time. So we are encouraged, I think, as I read this passage, I know I am, and looking through scripture and thinking about the mockery that we receive, the scorn, the scoffing, it's all been there. It's all happened. People have been doing it throughout the generations. What really matters is, did God promise it? Did God say, you can bank on it? This is my commitment to you. This is the covenant I make. And if it is, then we know God is going to do what he says. So more on the argument that Peter employs to respond to the scoffers. And I hope that'll be a great uh, example for us and good equipment for us as we get ready to respond to the scoffers in our lives. So we'll be back, Lord willing, uh, as we continue tomorrow on our study, in our study of 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll see you then.